0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamp, And I'm Joe McCormick. And Rob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I
0: think this is finally the year that you've gotten... Full blown into Rocky Erickson
1: is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I would guess so. Yeah, I got I, I listened to him a little in the past, and, and this year I I I got even more into him, Yeah.
0: Okay, so Rocky has long been one of my favorite uh, rock and roll vampires, and one of the things I love about Rocky Erickson monster songs is how much they're about the weather. Um, mm. so you may remember the line from his great, uh, his great anthem, the night of the vampire, if it's raining and you're running, don't slip in mud because if you do, you'll slip in blood. I mean, that's just logic. Yeah. And there's a really infectious glee to that kind of logic, but also I, I enjoy the weather, uh, weather represented in songs like the wind and more, which I know, uh, compares sort of the, the voice
1: of Lucifer to, uh, to the, the storm winds that are battering through the house. Yeah, absolutely. And and if anyone out there is not sure who we're talking about, um, you should look up Rocky Erickson, uh, who uh, also what was the, the other group Thirteenth um, Thirteenth Floor,
0: ele- yeah, Garage Psych yeah. Band from the late '60s, early '70s, based in I think Austin, definitely out of Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic psychedelic rock, uh, but then Rocky Erickson had a had a long uh, solo career after that of all, all different kinds of music. You know, he he. Um, so some of the stuff he released, uh, he, he had a lot of uh, troubles with mental health, and at some points he was in psychiatric institutions, but even in those periods would sort of make these little demos of uh, songs recorded, it uh, sounds like just on a tape recorder, that are very simple but, but strangely beautiful. And then at other times he would make full-blown uh, monster rock and roll albums. There's one called Mm-hmm. one that's just fantastic that's got a kind of credence clearwater revival style rock production uh, but all the songs are about uh, demons and ghosts and and 50s atomic age monster movies
1: yeah and it's pretty hard stuff too like it's uh you know, like it's 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 got a hard rock vibe that yeah. i think uh, might surprise some people uh so it's i think it was produced by somebody from credence of memory sir Stu cook um, i think so yeah but 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 harder than credence uh in my opinion
0: Well, all that is preamble to uh, the fact that today we wanted to talk about the intersection of ghosts and weather.
1: Yeah, and I, I have to stress that we absolutely won't be able to cover everything here because there are just too many storm monsters and storm deities out there, uh, storm-related uh, ghosts and other creatures. But we're going to be covering various examples that seem related to some of the the core ideas that we were kicking around for this episode. And, uh, and, and really, the, the central idea has to do with a recent uh, trip you went
0: on. Oh, yeah. So, I was recently uh, in coastal South Carolina. Uh, Robin have, have you been to coastal South Carolina I assume probably
1: oh yeah 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 uh, and and of course South Carolina plays with a lot of ghosts
0: tons of ghosts everywhere you go there like you can find a little a local visitor center that's got a local uh, self-published ghost author who's collected mm-hmm. all the lore and they've got it in a in a book that the font of the book is usually Times New Roman uh, but it's <laughs> uh, but it'll have lots of great you know local ghost stories in it. And so there's one that I was reading about from a, a particular place on uh, the South Carolina coast, a little island called Pawley's Island. And so to explain this, I want to refer to an article that was published by Myrtle Beach Online. So it's a local news article from the Myrtle Beach area that's also coastal South mm-hmm. Carolina by a writer named Tyler Fleming. The article says it was last updated in September 2019. I'm not sure if that's when it was originally published. But it's a this local news article trying to track down the origins of a bit of ghost lore from this area of the South Carolina coastline. And specifically, this is the story of a being called the Gray Man. Hmm. You know, I'd say it's used a lot, but I'm, I'm still a sucker for uh, – for that formulation of a creature name, just the the blank man, especially if whatever the mm-hmm. word in the middle is, is a single syllable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the green man. The gray man. The tall man, yeah. hmm So according to the legend, this is a spirit that wanders around on the shore, on and around this small island called Polly's Island, South Carolina, uh, usually appearing just before the landfall of terrible storms as a translucent gray figure stalking the beaches and boardwalks in a long cloak sometimes he's literally described as dressed like a pirate uh and one uh, one funny i think uh l- little little justified uh accusation of his identity is that he is blackbeard he is uh i don't know how you're supposed to say his last name Ed- edward teach or teach or
1: thatch mm. however it is yeah yeah with the, with the burning brands in his beard yeah this this gets into an interesting area that I I, I like about um, about ghosts of this nature because uh, and this is all thoroughly non scientific of course but we have this idea that uh, you know that something bad happens and the ghost is like a lingering after effect of that thing mm. um, and then certainly there's also this idea that a ghost say Blackbeard's ghost uh, uh, or just this mysterious gray man uh, would have potentially insider information about what's going to happen. Maybe, you know, they, they died at sea and therefore they know the sea a little better and they can, they can warn us about things. But then there's also an idea of, the, of, uh, of hauntings as being, uh, you know, th- things that work in both directions in time, uh, that they can be harbingers of, of de- terrible events. Um, you know, perhaps they're even attached to events that have yet to come.
0: Well, yeah, and that is exactly the case with the Gray Man. So, contrary to what you might assume about this spectral figure, you know, crunching along through the sand and the in the in the storms and the wind, uh, local legend usually describes the Gray Man as a benign or even a helpful spirit. And the purpose of his hauntings is to serve as a warning to people who live nearby that a coming storm is going to be especially destructive. Mm. So uh, as a few examples of this uh, this belief among locals, I was looking at a 2018 article in Southern Living by Megan Overdeep uh, about this ghost legend. And it describes how there were locals in in South Carolina who claimed sightings of the gray man just before Hurricane Hazel in 1954 and Hurricane Hugo in 1989. Uh, But as a more recent example, also this this article embedded tweets, uh, like people tweeting grainy photos of alleged gray man sightings ahead of Hurricane Florence in 2018. So, Rob, I've embedded uh, one for you to look at here. Listeners, you you can go look up this article in Southern Living if you want to find these tweets. But um, this one embeds a photo that is allegedly taken uh, at a boardwalk that uh, goes over the beach on Polly's Island. And there is, I don't know, so it's it's a very grainy photograph. It's got a lot of what looks like digital artifacts and pixelation in it. And then there's this big. Sort of pale gray smudge in the middle of it that looks oh you know, yeah maybe like it could be some kind of vertical object on the boardwalk, but some people apparently looked at that and said, "Hey, it's the gray
1: man." Well, I have to point out that the the tweet that is shared in this article, uh, the tweeter. Uh, it does have a blue check mark, so this is verified. <laughs> this is this is verified. It, Proof of the afterlife confirmed.
0: As usual, why do sightings of the paranormal so strongly favor low fidelity documentation? I I think I'm not positive, but this looks like it's from some kind of like. Uh, uh, stationary live camera that sort of documents, you know, foot traffic on the beach. I think that you can tune into and see what's going on there. I'm not positive that's what it is, but uh, I know there is stuff like that around there. And so th- that's what it looks like to me, but it could be something else anyway. Yeah. It's very grainy. It's got all the, you know, it's got the, the pixelated artifacts in it and I just want some
1: high definition gray man, but I can't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Obviously, I think that gets down to the, just the the fact that yeah, sightings occur when things are obscured and uncertain. They emerge out of uncertainty and uh, uh, and, and and depleted uh, visual efficiency. Yeah, uh, so th- that'll come uh, back later
0: like, with something I want to get mm-hmm. into in a minute. Uh, so to quote from this uh, article by Tyler Fleming here quote. Not only does he warn people, but he is also known to protect their property from a storm. A woman in 1954 claimed to see the gray man ahead of the infamous Hurricane Hazel hitting the area. She said not only was her house spared from the devastation, the beach towels she left on her balcony were still hanging up.
1: So the ghost is like, oh, madam, I... I." I, I, those those beach towels are just too beautiful. <laughs> I can't stand to see them uh, swept into the storm. I'll protect your house.
0: But what about all the people who died? I mean, shouldn't the ghost have prioritized <laughs> the, the people instead of the beach towels?
1: <laughs> probably, I've seen people, but these beach towels, my God, they're beautiful.
0: So this article in uh, Myrtle Beach Online goes on to list some of the local speculation about the alleged origin of this ghost. It does not mention Blackbeard. That one might be a kind of spurious allegation. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I think all of these are probably just made-up later legends, but, uh, but trying to fa- uh, track down at least what are the earliest of the legends. Um, so the source that the article cites on these is the Georgetown Museum. Georgetown is a, a city near Polly's Island. Um, and so they've got, a, a, I guess, a museum that has some stuff about this local legend. And one story, this, this appears to be the dominant one, is about a man who perished in the South Carolina Low Country in 1822. And the tale goes that this young man had been traveling abroad for two years. And in September of 1822, he decided he, he wanted to come home so he could see his fiancée. Uh, back in South Carolina, and they could set a date for their wedding. And he was apparently in such a hurry to get back and see her face again that he took a shortcut through the marsh, and he ended up stuck in quicksand, which spelled his doom. And then his fiancée, she's grieving over the fact that, uh, I guess, I don't know if she found out that he died or if he just never showed up, but she's grieving for some reason, and she goes out walking along the shore and she's treading through the sand and while strolling alone on the beach she sees a dark silhouette it's a it's the figure of a man and she realizes that it's the soul of her would-be husband who died in in the marsh and she's so troubled by this vision and others like it that she has later that, that her family decides to relocate inland. They they move away from that house, and the very next day after they leave, a hurricane sweeps through, leaving a, a path of destruction that would have killed them had they not left. And it's apparently this legend that that could give rise to this this common belief that the ghost appears to people to warn them of storms. And as a quick side note, I wanted to mention that I love that the story involves quicksand, which of course is one of my mm-hmm. favorite uh, plot devices. Uh, but that does have an environmental reality to it. You you might not want to call it quicksand, but the uh, the South Carolina Low Country, uh, especially the marshes, it's sort of like the the mouth of the, the what they usually call the creeks. You know, the little uh, the tributaries of water that eventually drain out into the ocean. Um, it, these areas will form this buildup of fine sediment that is known as pluff mud. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I I was reading at least one article from the uh, I think it was the Hilton Head area that was all about uh, the story of a lady who goes out walking in the marsh for some reason and she ends up stuck in the pluff mud and she's there until like into the evening and they have to send rescuers in to, to dig her out, uh, because you can very easily get stuck in this stuff. You can sink into it. It's, a there are a lot of myths about quicksand and, uh, and, and things like it that you would like sink down under your head and drown. That's usually not a very common thing to happen if it happens at all. Really. I think the risk of, of quicksand and even pluff mud is just that you would get stuck in it and have trouble getting yourself out
1: yeah i've certainly been in uh, i don 't know if it constitutes pluff mud or or if it 's just you know very wet sand but i've been in i've noticed some coastal situations where you'll have a real uh, real boot sucker or sandal sucker of a of a situation you know where the, the the sand is just the right consistency that if you you step into it you might be pulling a barefoot back out
0: yes and it, it's almost it's wonderful that it creates this um this almost untouchable terrain because there are a lot of areas around in the, the low country where you can like, uh, if there, there'll be a nature preserve and you can take a boardwalk out over the marsh and if you look down on it, you can see all kinds of life. You know, things are happening down in the mm-hmm. pluff mud. There may be these big colonies of oysters and you can see fiddler crabs popping up out of holes and running around and all the birds hunting them. Uh, but yeah, you, it's the kind of place where you wouldn't really want to go down and venture yourself. Mm-hmm. At least not without some special equipment, maybe like weight displacement boots or something. Now, apparently there are some alternatives for the origin of the gray man legend. Um, uh, to, to quote again from uh, that uh, the Myrtle Beach Online article, quote, uh, other theories tell a different story. One still has a man returning from sea, but this time his fiancé decided to marry his best friend instead. He throws himself into the Waccamaw, this is the Waccamaw River, which is a nearby river, and then later his fiancé and friend do the same. Other stories say he was an unknown sailor who washed up on shore and died shortly after. Some believe he is the original owner of Polly's Island, George Polly, who lived there in the early 1700s.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, of course, this would be far from the only legendary supernatural being associated with weather phenomena. You know, there, there are tons of ghosts and monsters and creatures and gods that uh, may not serve exactly this purpose saying like, Hey, a storm's coming, but they're in one way or another associated specifically with storms or other transient weather phenomena. And so while poking around on the subject, I came across what I thought was uh, an interesting and kind of funny article Uh, So this was on uh, this was a weather news article by Michael Kuhn on AccuWeather.com with the headline, quote, (laughs) Ghost Hunter, colon, thunderstorms cause
1: an increase in paranormal activity. Well, I mean, certainly if you've watched in, enough horror films and, and ghost movies, you know that this is the case. You've got to have a thunderstorm going in the background. Right. I mean, it's it's a classic
0: of horror fiction, right? Uh, so you could argue about the, the order of causality there. But uh, yeah, you know, you got the classic, uh, what's it, the, the Bulwer-Lytton line, the, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, and then the idea that it seems that uh, stormy conditions have long inspired uh, Gothic modes of thought. I mean, you know, there's the classic story of uh, how did uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley come up with the idea for Frankenstein? It was during that summer when, when she and Byron and the whole crew were sort of like stuck inside due to this this dark and stormy summer, sort of it was the year without a summer, which uh, in a weird twist of fate, I think was likely due to volcanic activity on the other side of the world. Um, mm-hmm. But that was the summer where she worked out the ideas for the story that would become Frankenstein, sort of a, a foundational text of modern horror. And so it's kind of hard for me to believe that the dark and stormy summer didn't in a way play a role in the formation of that story in her mind, but um yeah uh, but anyway so so this article about the the paranormal activity in the thunderstorm, so the article consults a paranormal enthusiast named mark keys who at the time of this article at least uh, was director of the pennsylvania paranormal association uh, i looked him up and it seems like he's featured on some some ghost hunter type tv shows the one that was uh i forget the name it was called like uh paranormal Nine One One or something mm-hmm. and uh based on his quotes i think i think this guy seems to uh take a sort of uh ghost realist position at least like he he uh he cites, for example, the advice of a of a spirit medium, as if the, he
1: believes this is likely to contain uh, information. And so, do you think there are skeptical ghost hunters who you call them? They show up at their, <laughs> their door, and you are like, "Hey, I think I've got a haunting." And their first thing is, "Well, look, first of all, ghosts aren't real."
0: <laughs> well, there and then, <laughs> there could be there could be open minded but skeptical ghost hunters. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, like yeah. I, I, I feel like that's the attitude I would try to take. I would say, you know, I I probably I think most ghost sightings or probably all of them are not really uh spectral beings from another plane. They're probably something about the perception of the person experiencing it, but you don't know for sure. I mean you, you at least look and see. Yeah. You try to find something out.
1: I mean it would be beneficial to have more people in that in, in, in that mo- mode yeah. where like they're an expert, you consult and they're like, okay, there are no said so there's there are no ghosts. But here are a list of things that that could contribute to this this very real and, and potentially frightening experience that you had. I'm sure there yeah, are that, some that people good. like that, but
0: I I guess I would assume I, this may not be fair. I don't know, but I would assume if you got like TV shows, uh, you're you're probably at least uh, at least for the cameras leaning
1: into embracing the sort of uh, ghost realist position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody's watch. Well, I guess you could watch a. I could. I guess I could imagine a ghost hunter show with this kind of a theme, like we're here. To bust the ghosts, but not only the ghosts themselves, but the idea of ghosts. That, that could be fun. Kind of a, a pen and teller, um, you know, uh, c- kind of approach to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I don't know. It could be done well. Like I feel like, like most things, you know, it, it could be done well if it was done well. But uh, coming back to this article, the thing that really got a hook in my brain about it uh, and that I thought was really interesting was that the article made an attempt to posit a physical mechanism – by which thunderstorms allow ghosts to appear. And I think basically the implication is that ghosts need to get charged up by lightning. Hmm. It's not said explicitly, but this does appear to be the implication uh, given by the, the guy cited in this article. So uh, to, to quote from the article. Some believe that apparitions or spirits need some source of energy to manifest their presence into the physical plane in order to communicate with the living. This could include drawing energy from electrical circuits and even batteries. And then uh, this is quoting from Keyes. If a spirit is trying to manifest, that is, become physically visible, it will pull energy out of the environment to do that. This could include heat, as cold spots are commonly reported, as well as in areas where a haunting has been reported. It seems to be shortly after a lightning storm that they do notice an increase, he said. And then, uh, then this is the part where Keyes claims that his psychic medium will back up the fact that after a thunderstorm, there is, quote, a lot more activity. Um now you know as as I think uh, will be clear if you've listened to us for a while or even from our earlier discussion I, I would say we generally take a you know broadly open-minded but specifically skeptical position on the physical reality of paranormal reports like this so so while we're we're not going to embrace the ghost realist position I would be potentially open to the claim from the the experience of a paranormal investigator who says that thunderstorms are correlated with increased reports of ghost sightings, poltergeist hauntings, and so forth. So I think that could well be true, and that could well be informed by experience, because there would be nothing supernatural in that. You just have to say, well, yeah, people do say they get haunted more often after there's been a storm or around the time of a storm. Um, but, I would tend to think that if this is true, the mechanism would more likely be that the thunderstorm somehow causes the perception of ghosts and wandering spirits rather than literally conjuring them
1: yeah, I mean, we have to remember that what is what does lightning do but but very briefly illuminates the darkened world. Ooh. Um, and just a flash and gives us a, a chance to sort of fill in in the gaps there uh, with whatever you might you know expect to be there in the storm. Uh, that's a really good point. And it's further
0: informed by some of the stuff that's quoted in this article as like, what are the most common things people report as evidence of hauntings in their homes? According to this paranormal investigator, he says that, okay, so first of all, you've got uh, think, you know visual evidence such as people witnessing shadows and spectral human forms, uh, which, I mean, seems like a darkened sky and then like il- briefly illuminated flashes of lightning. That seems like, okay, that's sort of perfect conditions to create illusory perceptions of uh, strangely shaped shadows and things like that. Mm-hmm. But then another thing that it identifies and this is something that I think uh, from my reading is is a very common uh source of paranormal reports what what I would call appliance phenomena um so the the article says quote reports of lights flickering and electronic equipment turning on and off on its own even when unplugged is common Other people report more physical activity, such as doors opening or closing, lights or TVs turning off by themselves. Believe it or not, we've had a lot of reports of stereos, radios turning themselves on when they're not even plugged in. Mm. And so, you know, it's hard to judge just from generalizations like this, but it's funny to me how much, like, everything that was just listed, except for the unplugged part, uh, is stuff that would be pretty much perfectly explained by the, the physical effects of a storm. So like doors opening and closing by themselves. Of course, during a storm, you have wind and pressure differentials that can blow a door one way or the other. And then the appliance phenomena, that's the, the anomalous activation or deactivation of electrical appliances, which I know from personal experience, and probably most of you do as well, that this can happen due to storms affecting the power grid and the power lines leading to your house. And Rob, I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your house, but sometimes like, uh, power supply issues during a storm don't affect the entire house at once, you know? So like you can have, um, uh, you can have like a power outage where just everything goes out. We usually recognize what that is, but we, we occasionally have stuff happen, uh, where, you know, like some parts of the house will kind of flash on and off and other things won't. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, I think that would not explain issues where people are claiming that appliances that are not plugged in start turning on and stuff. Like a lot of the reports emphasize these extra levels of implausibility. You know, the stereo wasn't even plugged in, and it started playing Whalen. And uh, I have no way of knowing this, but I, part of me just kind of suspects that the appliance was unplugged claim in particular. It seems like, a, like a, just a very likely exaggeration place to go like maybe you witness some apparently anomalous activation or deactivation of an appliance an electrical appliance and it feels really notable when you first notice it but then thinking back on it uh oh yeah sometimes things do just turn on and off this kind of needs some extra beef and it's like well were we even sure it was plugged in it might not have even been plugged in
1: yeah, I mean, we have so many things plugged in these days. It's sometimes it's hard to keep count of what's, what's plugged in, what's unplugged, and you go to unplug one thing and you actually unplug the other. So plenty of room for uh, misunderstanding and altered memory there.
0: Yeah, but th- so the other main fork of the storm causation here on, on the hauntings, I would think would tend to be um, the effects of storms on human psychology, storms or even atmospheric conditions before or after storms.
1: Yeah, I mean, this makes perfect sense. You know, ghosts are often associated with darkness. Uh, Lightning, again, momentarily illuminates the dark. And even if it's not nighttime, uh, you know, you have a storm roll in. What does it do? It brings a certain level of darkness and shadow with it. Throw in the rain, uh, some booming thunder, and you have just a creepy environment.
0: Uh, Not just creepy, but I'm thinking about the informational and sensory effects of storms. Coming back to that grainy photo we were talking about earlier, I would argue Mm -hmm. that stormy weather reduces the sensory resolution of your environment. Um, So there's darkening due to cloud cover. Less light means less visual information or certainly uh, less certainty in your visual information. And then once you get uh, mist and rain, visibility is further reduced and wind and thunder and rain also reduce the auditory clarity of your environment. So, Imagine you know turning up the volume on a staticky radio channel, it's harder to discern the true signals, sound signals around you, and it's easier to mistakenly perceive a signal within the noise. And I think this would fit with what I said earlier about ghosts so often appearing these days on low-resolution film, video, and audio recordings.
1: Yeah, if I'm not sure what I see, if I'm not sure what is recorded in, uh, in one form or another, then that creates an opportunity to lean into some sort of supernatural understanding of what it might be
0: now i was trying to think about other things here where um could could there be other sensations people get maybe when a storm is approaching that puts them in an alternative uh an alternative state of mind or has some detectable effect on humans that could lead to paranormal experiences um I'm not convinced on this one, but there, there are at least some questions I would like to pose. Um, and so, for example, one of the things I was thinking about was barometric pressure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we all live under atmospheric pressure. At sea level, under normal conditions, you walk around with about 14.7 pounds per square inch of atmosphere pressing down on and around you. Uh, but we don't normally perceive the weight of the atmosphere because we're equalized to it. Uh, and in fact, if a significant amount of that weight were to be removed, we could probably notice it. Like if you go high up uh, enough, if you go to a high altitude, you can feel a difference in the reduced air pressure, obviously, because, you know, the higher up you go, the less atmosphere there is to, uh, is above you to press down. Uh, but air pressure at any surface altitude is variable, so at sea level. Changes in the weather, changes of the heating of the Earth's surface can cause imbalances in barometric pressure. So as you have a region of the Earth's surface that gets hot, that hot air rises. You can almost imagine it being sucked up into the upper atmosphere by a giant vacuum. This forms a vacuum below it. It forms a low-pressure system. And when you have a low-pressure region, pressure is falling, that means air from the surrounding regions of the Earth's surface will flow into that area of falling pressure to compensate. And we perceive this flow of air as wind. This is what wind is. Uh, And then the the rising warm air in a low-pressure system also carries with it water vapor content, which condenses into clouds and eventually has to fall back down as rain. So falling barometric pressure is generally taken as a sign that storms are coming. If your barometric pressure is going down and your wind speed is increasing, you can be pretty sure there is a storm headed your way. So that's generally factual, but I guess what I was wondering about was, well, okay, so do signs like that, does low or falling barometric pressure have any effect on humans that could lead to sort of different states of mind or behavior? This one seems uncertain to me. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Psychological studies have tracked all kinds of effects of weather on mood, cognition, and behavior. And it seems to me that while there have been a few studies finding some effects of barometric pressure If those effects are sound, they appear to be a lot more subtle than the stronger effects of factors like temperature. Mm -hmm. But to cite just a couple at least of the reported effects, uh, for for one example, uh, I was looking at a study called A Warm Heart and a Clear Head, the Contingent Effects of Weather on Mood and Cognition. This was published in Psychological Science in 2005. This was a study of weather as a, as a function uh, generally of seasonal changes and, and looking somewhat into uh, questions about seasonal affective disorder. Uh, but the authors here write in their abstract, quote, In two correlational studies and an experiment manipulating participants' time outdoors, pleasant weather I – mean, this would mean higher temperature and, uh, or higher barometric pressure – was related to higher mood, better memory, and broadened cognitive style during the spring as time spent outside increased. The same relationships between mood and weather were not observed during other times of year, though, and indeed hotter weather was associated with lower mood in the summer. Uh, though, of course, obviously you, know, you can have uh, hot weather in the summer that is uh, associated with low-pressure regions that lead up to, to a storm. And to uh, further elucidate their findings, they write in their results section that, quote, as in some of the previous research, and they cite Clark and Watson in 1988 and Watson in 2000 – Neither temperature nor barometric pressure was directly related to mood valence. However, the interactions of time spent outside with temperature and with barometric pressure were both significantly related to mood valence in the expected direction. As time spent outside increased, the temperature-mood and pressure-mood relationships became more positive. So basically, if you have participants, uh, if you tell them they need to spend more than thirty minutes outside, higher temperatures and higher pressure are associated with better moods and outcomes. Um, and uh, and but if you have people spend uh, less than thirty minutes outside, then the relationship is actually reversed. So like good weather outside and having to stay indoors apparently has uh, has a negative effect uh, on mood and cognition in this finding.
1: All right, yeah, I think most of us can relate to that. You know, if you. If it's a nice day outside, but it's a day where you only get to experience that whilst moving from one indoor environment to another, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. But if you get to be outside the whole day or a large portion of the day, then that's great. Uh,
0: but unfortunately, so while this did look at uh, barometric pressure as one of the things informing uh, the, the weather states it was looking at, this combination of temperature and barometric pressure, what they were really looking at was like, what are the effects of of good good at you know so like high pressure high temperature Mm -hmm. is there anything that directly tests for no 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 what is it what is it about low pressure specifically you know that state when you would expect a storm to be heading your way Uh, There are some other findings that seem potentially more directly informative on this question, but I also feel somewhat cautious about them. They don't feel uh, super conclusive. So, for example, one study I came across was published in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry in 2003 by Thomas Shorey et al., And it looked at uh, documented emergency psychiatric visits to a city's psychiatric emergency room in the year 1999 in a mid-sized city. And uh, they also looked at city police department data and suicide data. And uh, what they found was, quote, The data suggests that total numbers of acts of violence and emergency psychiatry visits are significantly associated with low barometric pressure. But then they found that psychiatric inpatient admissions and suicides were not associated with any of the weather variables they investigated. So that's one of those things that's – okay, that's a a bird's-eye level uh, observation of something that happened in one city that might merit further investigation. But I don't think we could say anything conclusive just based on that. Um, So I would be skeptical about drawing too many conclusions from – Uh, from ideas about the relationship between barometric pressure specifically and psychology. Uh, But the conditions that precede a storm, both the obvious and cognitively recognized conditions like clouds, darkening skies, and thunder, and then perhaps some subconsciously perceived conditions like dropping barometric pressure or increasing winds – I think it could possibly give rise to a different state of mind when a storm is approaching, certainly the the cognitively
1: recognized ones. So I think these are all excellent ideas to keep in mind as we proceed through the rest of the episode, where I thought we might just look at some various ghosts and monsters and sometimes... Divine or partially divine figures from around the world that have something to do with with weather, or in or at least in one in one case has nothing to do with weather, but gets into the idea of a ghost harbinger. Okay. So um, first of all, we'll go ahead and get the one out of the way that doesn't really seem to have anything to do with weather. Um, well, actually, I guess I have a, a couple of them uh, here. <laughs> And the first one here is, uh, is Herne the hunter. Have you heard of this particular ghost? N- not until you introduced him to me. So this is apparently a ghostly phosphorescent mounted hunter said to ride through the woods surrounding Windsor Castle in the UK. He's covered in furs and his head is obscured by the skull and antlers of a great stag. Mm. Now, when I, when I heard about this, I had to, of course, look it up in, uh, in Carol Rose's uh, encyclopedic volumes on monsters and fairies and whatnot, and she makes a, a possible connection here between this legend and older Celtic uh, beliefs in a particular horned fertility god uh, whose uh, name was uh, Cernunus, that's um, C-E-R-N-U-N-N-O-S, that's at least one modern spelling of it. Mm. But this uh, this particular apparition was, uh, was referenced by Shakespeare, and uh, in the the 20th century at least has come to be seen as a harbinger of disaster not of storms but of economic and political disaster which i found interesting mm. so sightings of the hunter here have been attributed to the 1931 economic depression the 1936 abdication crisis the 1939 declaration of war and the 1952 death of george the uh, another version I've read is that uh, Herné the Hunter always appears when a monarch is close to death. Well, this raises
0: a question for me about a, a distinction we could make about harbinger uh, deities,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or maybe not deities. I don't know if if Herné here is a is a god or just a a creature or being of some kind. What, whatever you would call it, the the these harbinger beings. You could say that, okay, if they appear right before a disaster of some kind, whether that's a hurricane or or an economic depression or the death of a monarch, are they appearing in a benign spirit, saying like, hey, I have divine foreknowledge because I'm of the other plane, I'm not of this world, so I'm not bound by time, and I'm just giving you a warning, like I'm here to let you know so you can prepare, or are they on the sort of uh, – uh, disastrous causation side is like uh, you know are they an ill omen is seeing them uh, in some way part of the causative structure of the disaster that comes or do they even directly bring it about by appearing
1: yeah yeah you could see various interpretations i guess of what exactly is going on um and and we'll 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 keep discussing this but uh another little tale that i read this was in rose's book um, referring to work by folklorist Ruth tongue um, it 's a story tongue uh, writes of the this uh, tale that was circulating about three British youths who were decked out in the teddy boy style of the 1960s teddy you can boy. look that up if, it, if you need a a visual of what that would look like uh, they were They were uh, you know up to i don 't know if they were up to no good but they were they were out they were hanging out in the woods, and what did they find a horn. And um, I believe the story goes that they were thinking, oh, well there must've been some sort of a, a film shoot going on here and they left a prop. Uh, We've got this horn, let's go ahead and blow it. So they blow the horn and then sure enough, uh, the unseen spirit begins to pursue them through the woods and uh, you know, getting closer and closer. And finally an arrow uh, seems to fly uh, and slays one of them dead, but there's not a single physical wound. It seemed to have been some sort of a ghost arrow. Mm. Uh, uh, so uh, that, that's, a, that's a fun little tale as well. And of course, this all r- relates back to other traditions of the wild hunt myth of some sort of uh, of a ghostly being or beings sometimes in the company of, of, of hellhounds uh, that goes out on strange hunts in the night and you don't want to run afoul of them.
0: Something is incongruous between that and the teddy boy thing. I'm hung up on the teddy boy detail. <laughs> Is this a commentary on the Teddy Boy fashion trend or...
1: I think it's just, you know, on the youth of the day. Okay. So it's like whatever the youth, you can imagine various uh, youth fashion trends uh-huh. in Britain and uh, and then being reflected in versions of the story. It makes it seem very cinematic. I can imagine well, the cinematic version. Of so this. if Herne has a stag skull on top of his head and you look up teddy boy hairstyles, I mean, you could see
0: some certain basic shape and contour similarities where their uh, pompadours look kind of like stag skulls. Yeah, yeah i guess without horns but
1: <laughs> now as far as, as ghostly harbingers go I, I know some of you are probably thinking of this um this is more in the realm of cryptids and and ufo but um there's the uh, the alleged supernatural harbinger of the silver bridge collapse of 1967 this is a bridge that spanned the ohio river uh the mothman uh, there have been books and movies about this. Uh, but the connection, the original connection between the collapse and sightings of the Mothman, I'm to understand, are largely due to the writings of UFOologist John Keel. I think this story is the inspiration behind the plot of
0: that Richard Gere movie, The Mothman Prophecies, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Wait,
1: I've never seen it, but I'm familiar
0: with oh, it. Oh, you know what? So, we watched it a few years back. We like to revisit uh, – uh, not just classic horror films, but, you know, Rachel and I sometimes watch, like, uh, Fallen by the Wayside horror films that nobody really talks about <laughs> anymore. And so this one was, what did this come out in the early 2000s or something? Um, I think yeah, so, yeah. sometime around then. It has Richard Gear, and it's about this whole uh, situation. And you know what? I got to say, it, it's not perfect, but there it's got some good ghostly atmosphere in it. It was actually pretty spooky. I, a, 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 a pretty solid thumbs up.
1: Now, uh, there are some other harbinger spirits of note. Uh, There's the the Kairath, uh, which is a harbinger spirit in the folklore of Wales. It's a a banshee-like being that wails and groans as she passes through the city streets at night, warning of impending disaster, including epidemics, which, uh, of course, is interesting. And then, uh, of course, speaking of, there's the banshee of Irish legend that wails under the window of a family member to portend that family member's death.
0: I guess this comes back to the question I brought up a minute ago because I think I've read about this in the context of the Banshee before where it's not really clear to me whether the belief is that the Banshee knows the death is going to happen and is sort of informing the family of such by their behavior or whether or not it's intentional on the Banshee's part. The Banshee is letting them know or the Banshee's presence is somehow causing the death.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, unanswerable questions about the strange doings of, uh, of weird creatures. And I guess that's one of the reasons that makes them weird and otherworldly is you don't know what their role in the whole scenario is. Mm. Uh, you know, what are you doing here? Are you feeding off of the, the, uh, of the misery of, uh, and the bereavement? Or are you here as an agent of death? Uh, what exactly is going on? Are you trying to warn us? Or is it something to beyond any of these interpretations? Mm they are here on Ghost Business, that's all you know. Right. Now, uh, let's get uh, back into just ideas of storms and uh, rain and water and um, cataclysmic weather. So, plenty of cultures have major flood, uh, storm, and cataclysm myths, and, and China is no exception. Uh, there's, of course, the story of Yu the Great who overcomes the deluge with drainage channels and earthwork. Uh, there's also the Chinese flood myth concerning the water god Gonggong, uh, Gong, uh, sometimes re- relegated as one of the four perils. Uh, so, this is a vast serpent with a human head, red hair, and... Uh, Gong Gong is uh, said to have caused a great flood by bumping into Mount Buzio, uh, which caused the sky pillar to collapse, resulting in just cosmic disorder. You end up having to have the goddess Nua uh, step in, repair the sky pillar in order to bring uh, order back out of chaos. And sometimes this myth and the myth of Yu the Great are are linked together. Mm -hmm. And then there's the myth of... um, Ho Yi, the, uh, the archer. Uh, you may remember him from his key role in the myth of the surplus suns, or his part in the lunar myth of Cheng'e and the potion of immortality. But to refresh, during the time of the Ten Suns, Emperor Gao calls upon Yi to shoot the nine surplus suns out of the sky, and he does so, saving the earth from fiery desolation. But the time of the Ten Suns is also a period of great disruption, and many unnatural beings roam free to commit great offenses against the gods. And so Emperor Yao charges Yi with the destruction of these monsters as well. He has to hunt them down and slay them in order to protect the people.
0: So is this after the sun he shoots down the nine surplus Suns and then goes to have to, he has to clean up afterwards with the monsters? Right.
1: Yeah, yeah, because the, the the cosmic disorder—it kind of—you've left with the idea that it kind of unleashed these beings, or it created a an atmosphere in which they could thrive, and now they need to be put back in check. Rounding up the loose ponies. Yeah. Now, according to the translators, John Major et al., in 2010s, the Huainanzi, a guide to the theory and practice of government in early Han China. These monsters, the, these monsters that uh, that Yi has to uh, has to hunt down, um, they pop up in various warring states and Han works, and seem to represent destructive forces of nature. One of these monsters you'll learn about next week on the Monster Fact, our, our Wednesday shorty episode. Uh, and that one, I think you can also make uh, – there's also strong evidence to support the idea that it represents some sort of natural disaster as well. Yeah. But there's one uh, in particular that's very connected to the idea of storms, and that is the wind bird feng. So this literally means a strong wind. Sometimes I see it translated as typhoon. It's a giant, ferocious bird of prey that brings with its strong winds whipped up by its mighty wings. So everywhere it goes, it brings destructive winds with it. So, of course, Yi has to, has to hunt it down, and he uses the, interestingly enough, he basically just uses the techniques that one would use in hunting birds, uh, especially during this time period. He attaches a cord to his arrow and shoots the the mighty bird out of the sky. Uh, he holds the cord uh, firmly uh, so that he can, you know, sort of keep track of it and kind of bring it down, and then he follows that cord to the site where he has grounded the, the mighty uh, Da Feng, and then he cuts its head off with his sword. Wow. Uh, in other tales, Yi also exacts revenge on the damaging river god, Hebo, Bo, uh, who he blinded in one eye. And then uh, he also hunts down uh, or seeks a vengeance on the wind god, Thingbo, Bo, uh, who he shot in the knee. So you might be a wind god on a chariot pulled by dragons or a, or a god who actually takes on the form of a dragon, but that doesn't mean Yi doesn't have a receipt for you if you caused a bunch of storm damage.
0: So, this raises a thought for me i 'm thinking about um, what are the different influences that determine sort of uh, what level the embodiment of the storms uh, represents within the the pantheon or maybe not even the pantheon the sort of uh, the supernatural theater of a mythological belief system because i 'm thinking about these cases where you can have a a specific monster or creature in this case it is a a ferocious monster being uh, that represents a kind of disorder it is the it is a pony that has gotten loose from a from a uh unharmonious phase of the universe and it has to be slain mm-hmm. and set right so this is the embodiment of storms in this one type of mythology, but you have plenty of other mythologies where storms are not only part of the natural divine order, but they are particularly the power of the like, most powerful god or the king of the gods. Think of you know the storm associations with, uh, with Zeus or Jupiter or the storm associations with the, some of the chief gods of the ancient Near Eastern pantheons.
1: Yeah, it's 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 interesting to think about this. Yeah, because you can. There's a huge difference between you know, the, the storm that is caused by the high god or a particularly powerful deity, one that is worshipped, and a storm caused by various monsters that are rampaging. Uh, you know, things that, that represent uh, cosmic disalignment, um, and uh, and yeah, you can have ramifications based on how you view that, but. Uh, it's, it's interesting too to think about even in our modern times what do we do with hurricanes and tropical storms mm. you know we name them mm-hmm. and of course they're, they're very good reasons to name a storm to give it a human name it, it helps uh, in communicating things about that storm and tracking them and making sure that people are prepared for this particular storm and not approaching it like you know the last storm uh, you know each, each hurricane that makes landfall is coming in at different, different intensities and it's going to affect a different area uh, in a different way it, it does seem interesting that i could be wrong about this
0: but my gut feeling is that people have an easier time knowing which hurricane you're talking about when they have names attached to them than they would if you were Mm -hmm. just referencing it by like a year or something you know
1: yeah Uh, yeah like the storm of 97 or something but if you if you give it a human name yeah you're you're anthropomorphizing it a little bit just you know there's no way around it uh but people are going to remember it people are going to know it's coming it seems to me that like when you say andrew that conjures up mm-hmm. like specific
0: imagery that you recall from being associated with that name versus like if you were just to say the year number i don't know maybe it would be different if we referred to it by years but that's my feeling on it
1: now to to move elsewhere in the world uh, another one that i ran across is the blue men of minch uh, so, there, there are a lot of merfolk myths and legends out there that involve the creatures having some degree of control over or knowledge of weather and storms, mm-hmm. and they're ultimately just too numerous to go through. There's a lot of uh, similarities between them. But this one stood out to me. Uh, the mer people were said, th- this particular variety of mer people, anyway, were said to haunt the Minch Passage of the Outer uh, Hebrides off of Scotland. Uh, This uh, body of water is known in Gaelic as srothna fir gorma, the channel of the blue men. Uh, This is also interesting because earlier we were talking about gray men and here we are with blue men. Mm -hmm. So they were said to look like normal humans except with entirely blue skin and gray beards. And it's a treacherous passage of water, apparently. And so the the legend was that the blue men would rise up from their deep caves and they would summon fierce storms against trespassing human ships and wreck them. But wise captains knew that the blue men loved rhyming contests. So uh, they could earn the ship's safety across the passage if they just had some great rhymes up their sleeves. Hmm. Now, um, Carol Rosen, in, uh, in her book, she she shares that the myth is thought to be based on Moorish slaves marooned by Vikings in the area during the ninth century, and the idea here is that uh, that uh, these uh, these individuals would have worn long blue robes and gray blue veils, huh? And incidentally, the Tuareg people of uh, of Saharan Africa. Uh, Uh, apparently do wear these fashions, like these are the traditional fashions of the Tuareg people.
0: Now, do you know if uh, that's more of a kind of legendary explanation, or is that thought by any modern scholars to have any uh, likely explanatory power in, in the origin of the myth?
1: Well, I was looking into it a bit and apparently Scottish folklorist Donald A. McKenzie, who lived 1873 through 1936, uh, was kind of the the individual who really uh, popularized this hypothesis. And today, I think there's some individuals who think that the true origin might just be accounts of the Tuareg people of the of, of Saharan Africa that traveled, um, you know, some sort of, um, you know, communication of this idea. Maybe the, you have some sort of a merfolk tradition and you combine that with, with uh, uh, you know, some sort of knowledge of, uh, of, of Tuareg people and what they wore, uh, or in, if not the Tuareg people, then perhaps um, – Uh, predecessors to them that had similar fashions and similar, uh, uh, you know, dyes in use. Mm. Uh, But another suggested explanation is that this belief in the blue people, uh, the blue men, that it refers in some fashion to tattooed picts. Uh, Ah, These would have been, uh, uh, you know, people who were known for their tattoos. Uh, And the the Latin uh, origin of picts is painted people. I seem to recall
0: this from the Roman period. At least some author talking about the idea that there would be uh, people in um, I don't know what they called it at the time. It was at Caledonia, you know, the area that is now mm-hmm. Scotland, you know, north of England. So you would have had Ro- Roman Britain, and then at a certain point that you have Hadrian's Wall, and then there are tribes that live north of that that they regarded as very barbaric. And I think they uh, there's some reference there to these people being painted in blue, or their warriors being painted in blue
1: yeah so ultimately, you know we don't we don't know exactly what the Blue Men of Minch is referring to, or what indeed which, what influences or what combination of influences led to this tradition, uh, but it was said they can p- control the weather, so uh, it's certainly worth mentioning here. Now another one. Now I have to get into the realm of yokai here for a bit, mm. uh, and and I'm especially excited to to, to talk about this because um, I recently picked up a fun little book to read with my son titled "Yokai Attack: The Japanese Monster Survival Guide." Um, uh, this is uh, by Yoda and Alt, and illustrated by uh, by uh, Tatsuya Marino, and it's a fun little book with uh, uh, that that has some wonderful illustrations, but also some great information in it. It's well. And uh, very informative and and very fun for young readers. Uh, So uh, I was looking through that and I was like, okay, I I know there's some yokai that relate to the weather or to the water. So there's got to be something good in here. Lay it on me. Well, there's one by the name of Umi Bozu. Uh, They're known as the Sea Monks. A Japanese yokai said to resemble great black bulb-like beings with glowing eyes emerging from the water. Uh, And the black may or may not be fur, if you could touch it, depending on the the account. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, depending on the account, they might be vengeful ghosts of the sea. Uh, And in this, they have much in common with some Chinese ghost traditions, uh, the boat spirits or uh, fonoyurei. Uh, which uh, you'll find uh, illustrations of as well. Uh, but in uh, anyway, the, the Umi Bozu are said to rise from the surface of the ocean, even during the day, even, so even if there's, there's nothing going on you know, with darkness and storm, but they bring with them atmospheric disturbances and storms. Um, and of course, this means that ultimately what they're trying to do, of course, is they want to uh, bring down vessels. They want to uh, cause your ship to sink, uh, drag it to the bottom of the ocean, and uh, the smaller ones, you might be able to drive away, but the larger ones are just too powerful.
0: Okay, so this would be more in line with the type of creature like the wind bird from, from Chinese legend that that literally brings the, the, the storm and weather disturbances by its own, like it directly causes them.
1: Yeah, yeah, would seem to be the case. Um and uh, these are these are fun ideas to get into as well, because first of all, the idea of any kind of enormous being, certainly um, you know this this black creature emerging from the water uh, it instantly makes us think of whales and indeed there there may be some connection there between uh, uh, between these legendary creatures and whale sightings. And I uh, also there's the possibility that there's some sort of atmospheric ghost lighting involved as well, uh, which is uh, you know, uh, something uh, worth remembering anytime you're dealing with ghosts of the ocean. But uh, one of the interesting takes I was reading about the the Funu yuri, the, the the Chinese version of this, the the boat spirits, uh, is that they were sometimes attributed. Uh, with uh, ladling water into ships and causing them to, to sink or or just by their very presence causing compasses not to work. Uh, but they were also said to simply hold ships in place. Mm. And some have theorized that this might occur due to dead water. So, this is a, a nautical phenomenon which uh, uh, you see take at least a couple of different forms. Uh, for instance, you see it in, in far northern um, uh, environments you see this a situation where slow moving vessels can become stuck due to a thin layer of fresh water spreading over the sea from melting ice um, uh, but then also you see the situation with internal waves uh, due to shallow brackish water in the upper layer of the water column, uh, making it uh, where a ship will feel stuck in the water, uh, as if something is holding it there. Uh, so it's been hypothesized that this could be a possible, uh, one of the possible reasons for this kind of myth. Like something is holding the ship in place. What is it? It must be some sort of ghostly presence. Oh, yeah. I think uh, this makes me recall,
0: it might have been in our episodes about the uh, the sargassum seaweed that we uh, – mm-hmm discussed uh other other supernatural ideas about the doldrums and and ways that your ship can become uh stuck in water without a propelling wind
1: yeah and of course that's interesting too right could because the the idea of a, a terrible storm can be devastating to the ship at sea, but also uh an complete absence of weather can be equally uh disturbing yeah. Now, uh, here's another uh, creature that came up uh, when I was looking around, and that's uh, um, the Elbst, an interesting lake monster, this time from the folklore of Switzerland, centered on the lake um, uh, Selzbergsee near Lucerne. Uh, Sightings are recorded from 1584 through 1926. Kind of a bulky, multi-limbed dragon creature that may suddenly surface alongside boats and scare people. Also may raid sheep uh, uh, herds at night and leave disturbingly mutilated bodies in its wake. Um, But their appearance in the water was said to foretell a powerful storm. Um, And uh, so I had to look this lake up. I wasn't familiar with it. Uh, It's also known as Sealy And it covers 44 acres and reaches depths of 37 meters or 121 feet. Mm. Now, in Irish mythology, uh, you also have the Fomorians. Um, These were said to be the original occupants of Ireland who were defeated by the invading firbolgs and then transformed into grotesque monsters or giants. And then, of course, the Tuatha de Danann come along and they invade, and they defeat the, defeat the Firbolgs. And so, the Fomorians are sometimes attributed with power over weather, over storms, as well as given the power to blight crops.
0: Oh, yeah. We we, we talked about Fomorians in the context of uh, Cúhullin or Kukulan.
1: mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, another interesting monster that is, that is definitely tied to the wind, at least in its origins... Uh, Are the harpies. And I think harpies are interesting because I think a a lot of modern monster fans probably think of of maybe two or three different things when you imagine the harpy. Uh, First of all, they're Ray Harryhausen's harpies from Jason and the Argonauts. Do you remember these?
0: Oh yeah, the, these terrible blue women with uh, with the the large blue bat wings.
1: Yeah, they have bat like wings in uh, in, uh, in Jason of the Argonauts, but they're yeah, they're pretty creepy, very gargoyle esque. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of this tradition, they're they're pretty weak enemies in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Uh, Not very impressive, uh, but there's some cool illustrations of them. And then, of course, there's the harpy in um, The the Last Unicorn, which is a terrifying and powerful creature that is is pretty much the direct opposite of everything they are in Dungeons & Dragons. And so in I think you know generally in our interpretation of the harpies we think of grotesque hybrids of vultures and women sometimes with uh, other uh, influences thrown in I've seen accounts where they say that they have bear ears. Wait. And in, wait, bear ears? Bear ears like the ears of a bear? I can't mm-hmm. even picture bear ears. What do bear ears look like? I don't I mean that's why I I think we we often just just whittle it down to just uh you know uh, old woman plus uh, vulture, you know, because you throw in these other influences. Yeah, what does it even mean? Okay, I just looked maybe up. Maybe it meant ears. more in, in times.
0: <laughs> bear ears—they're little nubs. I mean, like bear ears do not seem like especially notable kinds of animal
1: ears. Yeah, well, maybe it, it meant more uh, during the time when she, <laughs> when this was attributed to their to, to their their these these monsters. That's such a funny choice. I love it. Now, in Greek and Roman myth, the number of the harpies, it, it varies. There may be as few as one or as many as five. And in origin, they are linked to traditions of wind spirits. Mm. And we see that in the various names that have been attributed to them. So, in uh, Theogony, uh, Hesiod writes, quote, "...and Thamus wedded Electra, the daughter of deep-flowing ocean, and she bare him swift Iris and the long-haired harpies, Aello, storm-swift." And Osepates, swift flyer, who on their swift wings keep pace with the blasts of the winds and the birds, for quick as time they dart along. Mm. By the way, Dungeons and Dragons gives Harpies a laughable 40-foot flying speed. Come on. That does not sound (laughs) as fast as time. What is it? Okay, so I don't know flying speeds usually. What is 40-foot? Oh, I think I've got uh, a—I
0: think my character, who's kind of a wimp, has a 30-foot walking speed. Is that right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, 30-foot walking walk is like a general humanoid walking speed. So, okay. the, the, the harpy can fly just a little further than a human being can walk wow. uh, in Dungeons & Dragons, which is uh, clearly, this is a creature that needs a, needs a reboot in the Monster Manual. Now, a Homer also wrote of harpies, particularly the harpy uh, Padarje, which means a swift foot. Uh, and this is said to be the mother of Balias and Xanthus, the steeds of Achilles. And uh, in a more general sense, though, the harpy is a human-bird hybrid, of course, and we see a a lot of these in global myth cycles. And it's often pointed out that this sort of particular hybrid between humans and creatures of the air, it often has some sort of connection between earth and sky, between the world of mortals and the abode of the gods. Uh, The harpy also specifically uh, is often brought up as an example of the monstrous feminine uh, in uh, in myth-making. So an imagined creature used to convey negative attitudes Attitudes about females and female bodies.
0: Yeah, I think of it as a kind of standard genre of misogynist comment to to compare a woman that you don't like to a harpy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But it seems that in their original form, in their origins, they were more like minor wind gods or or wind demons, uh, perhaps more in keeping with the furies who might descend on a mortal at the behest of a god. Uh, By the way, an interesting wrinkle in all of this that I think we've discussed before uh, is that the sirens, uh, who we often think of now, and and this is represented in art, you think of mermaids or you think of, you know, beautiful veiled women emerging from the surf, but they were originally bird-female hybrids as well. And so uh, ancient depictions of what we might think of as harpies in the modern sense uh, might have been sirens or in some cases uh, just were something else, some other kind of bird-human hybrid. Uh, For instance, there's a tomb, uh, the, the tomb of Xanthus, found, uh, and uh, there's a, a carving from it, various carvings from it, I think that you can find in the British Museum. And it's it's been referred to for a long time as the Harpy Tomb. And you see this winged female figure, though it, it's, it's far from certain that these were sirens, but they were probably not harpies either. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think it's still an open question exactly what this particular being is supposed to be. You know, bringing this back to the special potency
0: of weather mythology and weather monsters when it comes to sailing and and ocean going. Uh, This reminds me of uh, a few years ago, I had a conversation with the author Chet Van Duser about his, Mm -hmm. uh, his books about the history of depictions of monsters on maps. Yeah. And, um, and one of the surprising things about that is if you had to guess, okay, uh, what are the most common types of sea monsters you would imagine depicted on a map? Uh, you, you would probably guess what, some kind of like ocean dragon type thing or maybe the, the kraken or, or like a snake-like sea monster. No, uh, by mm-hmm. far the most common type of monster, uh, at least depicted throughout the Western history of maps, is the siren. If you're going to have one type of monster on there, it's going to be a siren.
1: And and do you remember if it was the the, the more merfolk style siren or the winged siren? I'm cautious to answer that because I'm not positive, but I
0: seem to recall representations both ways. Mm. Um, though I guess the winged version would probably be closer to this association with weather events.
1: Yeah, I would. I would think so. Yeah, they, and, and certainly the, the 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 curious nature of winds and winds at sea, and I guess that's where a lot of this comes back to. Like how how do we today, and how have people throughout history thought about weather patterns, particularly? Mm destructive weather, that seem out of the normal, uh, you know, uh, that are unique and dangerous. How do we think about those? Are those the work of, uh, of strange creatures that we can't quite understand? Are they cosmic anomalies? Might there be some sort of magical being that would warn us if these are occurring? Is there some hero that could protect us from them, that could slay these monsters and return the world to, to some sort of normality? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to think about. I wonder about something else coming back to Gray Man-type
0: sightings of you know the being that would warn you about, about a coming storm. I wonder to what extent legends like that could also sort of be going the other way in terms of our uh, internal mental causation, meaning like how much of it is based in people have some kind of experience. You know, They see what they think is a, is a spectral figure or a spirit of so, or something, and they want it to mean something. They don't want it to just be I saw something weird and there's no reason for it. So Mm -hmm. they try to connect it to something significant. It's trying to tell me X. This means Y. When we have unusual experiences, I think it's very natural for us to try to say, no, 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 that was not just an unusual experience. It was an indication of something. It was somehow informative. It meant something. And it seems like possibly the single easiest place you could go to there is connecting it to external environmental events like the weather. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one reason there's so much weather lore where people can say, oh, you can tell a storm's coming when, I don't know, when a cow sits down at night or something. Like, you know, (laughs) there's a million sayings like that. And it's because weather is constantly changing. So there's just like constant opportunities for you to observe one thing and then something happens with the weather and you make a connection there
1: yeah and our mind is constantly looking for those connections. We want to make those connections. And often with weather, the stakes are are enormous, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when we're talking about highly destructive weather patterns. So of course uh, we're looking for some sort of connection between uh, the things we see in the world and what's going on in the weather, and that includes uh, uh, things we don't completely see, you know, or we 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 miss see or we misinterpret or hallucinations and so forth. And so, yeah,
0: I think that uh, – I guess one place I was going with that is that perhaps that selective uh, sort of meaning-seeking whenever you have a strange experience – could lead to a form of selective reporting that uh, informs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody thinks they see something weird in a photo or thinks they see something weird on the beach, and then nothing happens the next day. Well, maybe, I don't know who they really tell about that. But if the next day the hurricane hits and you think you've discovered some kind of uh, informative correlation there, you might be much more likely to tell everybody the story.
1: Yeah, Uh it, and and if, it not, if not the weather, then perhaps there's something else that occurs. Mm-hmm. You know, you see something strange, and then the next day uh, a monarch dies, yeah. or a, yeah, a storm occurs, or a family member grows sick. Then you can make that connection, and you'd be like, ah, this is what that was about. It didn't happen for no reason. It was a warning. It was a communication.
0: But yeah, it's funny, because if you broaden it that much to just like basically any significant event, I mean, there's
1: always something in the news.
0: <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like something happens every day.
1: Yeah. I mean, stuff happens. It seems to happen for no reason. And if that if that's the case, you know, you have nothing. But if you have ghosts, well, then you have everything, right? <laughs> very nice. Very nice. To bring it back to Rocky.
0: Well, you know, they say the moon to the left is a part of my thoughts and a part of my thoughts is a part of me is me. Uh, so, uh, so maybe before our fangs get too long, we should cut this episode off.
1: All right. Uh, but of course we're going to be discussing lots of, uh, ghostly and monstrous things, uh, for the rest of this month and eh, probably a little bit beyond. Uh, we're, 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 we're well into the season now. Uh, so stay tuned. It should be fun. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, her core episodes are on Tuesday and Thursday, we have an Artifact or a monster fact on Wednesday. Monday is Lister Mail. Friday is Weird House Cinema. That's our time to just unwind and discuss a weird film. And, of course, we have some very spooky films to discuss this month as well. And then on the weekend, we do a Vault episode, which is, of course, a rerun from the previous year.
0: I just want to give a teaser that this week's episode of Weird House Cinema, I think, is without a doubt going to be our longest, most epic episode of all time and uh, may, may remain that way because... Yeah, I, I don't know if it can be outdone
1: Oh, I wonder if it's longer than the movie itself I think we've, we've oh, had that happen at least once <laughs> Okay, yeah Alright, we'll tune in to find out what that is Huge thanks, as always, to our
0: wonderful audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson If you would like to get in touch with us With feedback on this episode or any other To suggest a topic for the future Or just to say hello You can email us at Contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com dot you Left to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.